Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. So, so yesterday, then, we, we considered together the, the royal triplet, didn't we? Faith, hope, and love, coupled together with work, labor, and patience. And we saw that there's a real dynamism in the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that brings these two couplets together. And this is precisely what happens to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica. We, we also saw, didn't we, how the poor the Apostle Paul took on various roles of responsibility within the Ecclesia. He was a steward, wasn't he? He was a mother, he was a father, and so importantly, he was a brother. And he did this because he loved the Ecclesia there. And we asked ourselves, those pointed questions, whether we ourselves are are prepared to take on those roles in ecclesial life. And if not, why not? And that's how we finished yesterday. Well, let's open up our Bibles, if you've not Um, gone there to the book of Thessalonians and we're going to go back to chapter 1 and then we'll launch back into the uh, latter part of the first epistle in a moment but what I want to do I want to draw your attention to a couple of words that are expressed here because you see in verse 7 Paul says to this ecclesia ye were ensamples to all those that believe in Macedonia and Achaia For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. And and, uh, what we've got here is a a very beautiful picture that's being painted by Paul. I want you just to notice that first phrase there, ye were in samples, and that's where we've taken today's theme from. Ye were in samples. So what does Paul mean? Ye were in samples. Well, of course, that word is, is, is alluding to you are an example. You, you were an example to all the ecclesias in the Asian world. But how was the ecclesia at Thessalonica uh, an example? Well, we'll notice that phrase, ye were in samples, is the Greek word tupos. T-U-P-O-S. And it means to strike or to hit. And, and more pointedly, it means to deliver a blow or make an impression. So just reflect upon that for a moment. What, what Paul is saying is that you were an example, not in your faithfulness, but in your perseverance through persecution. The deep impressions that were being inflicted upon you in the way that you responded to that affliction you were an example or you were a model so so the point being made here is that they were a model in their persecution now it also builds a little more here because notice that in this affliction they sounded out so I want you now to picture something else that the Ecclesia of Thessalonica is this huge piece of metal, and they are being bashed and smashed and hammered. And these deep marks of affliction are being made in the metal. And in the affliction and in the bashing, they're sounding out. A noise is being made. And that phrase there, sounded out, is the word exikomen, where we get the word echo. Echo. So in the 
bashing and in the smashing and in the hammering of this ecclesia and their affliction and in their persecution. All across Asia, people were listening and hearing to the echoes of affliction that were taking place in Thessalonica. And brothers and sisters, the, the idea of this phrase is incredibly positive. It was a distinctive noise. They they knew exactly what the noise was. And as they heard this noise, it was an upbeat sound. It was a a sound of exhortation, of comfort and consolation. As an ecclesia was getting bashed and bashed and bashed, all the ecclesias round about heard it and were encouraged. Well, of course, the, the only way they could be encouraged is because the way that they were positively responding. And in that noise is the response of this ecclesia. That they could hear the response of the ecclesia in this echo, in this noise. What a moving picture. And and brothers and sisters, this ecclesia, remember I've already mentioned the point that this was the blueprint of all the Gentile ecclesias. Here in the bashing and in the smashing and in the hammering, what what, what is Paul uh, really pointing out? In the bashing and the smashing, this ecclesia was being moulded and shaped into the image of Christ. And as this was happening to this ecclesia, everyone was encouraged. Now, let me read these words to you, because here again, you you get a striking contrast between the old law and the new law. So remember, in Hebrews chapter 12, let me read these words to you. Those taking notes, you can just jot down verses 19 to 21. But I'm going to mention something to you, and it relates to the noise that was heard on Mount Horeb, when the children of Israel stood apart, and that mount shook. So what was the noise that they heard under the old law? Well, here, the writer of the Hebrew says, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, that, that was the noise that was emanating from the mount. And, and Moses concludes, and I've already mentioned, that this is the only time that we read that Moses exceedingly feared and quaked. We read of that in Hebrews chapter 12, that the, the Exodus record doesn't record that. So under inspiration, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, this is what happened to Moses when he heard that noise. Even Moses, the great man, the, the deliverer, the, the, the saviour of God, when he heard that noise, he was fearful and he quaked. That, brothers and sisters, was the noise of the law. It was a sound of judgment. But now this is the sound of the gospel message working in ecclesias and men and women that the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 in the faith of Abraham and his faithful response or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so, as the brothers and sisters across the Asian world could hear this noise, they were realizing the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. How this nation and this people and this ecclesia in the bashing and the smashing and in the hammering were being blessed. You see that, brothers and sisters? What a powerful exhortation that is for us as we go through the downs of life and the chastisement. We've just been looking at the life of Job with the young people, the chastening. This is what Paul's picking up here. It was the noise of the gospel going forth. I would suggest, having just done Elijah during the last week at the kids' camp, this is the still small voice of God.
that's being heard. Finally, it's released across the world to the four corners of the earth. Well, there's a couple of really interesting things here that we should observe. Because notice in verse 8, they receive, notice, the word of God. It sounded out, okay? So this noise sounded out and they received the word of the Lord. Okay? And then if you go down to the end of verse 8, your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It's a very simple lesson, but it's incredibly profound. So what Paul is saying here is that you, you spread the word of the Lord. Okay, so in this bashing and this smashing and this hammering, they spread the word of the Lord and it sounded out. In other words, this ecclesia, they didn't contain their excitement of their experiences. They told the neighbouring ecclesias and they told others about the things that the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ was working in them as an ecclesia. So they are preaching in a very direct way, as we do in our ecclesias and, and, and through campaigns. That's how men and women hear about the truth. By telling others about it. And so that's what Paul is saying. You, you sound it out. Brothers and sisters at Thessalonica, you, you sounded out the word of the Lord. Not, not only in Macedonia, but in all Achaia. That's what you did. You, you, you preached the truth, brothers and sisters. And, and it's highly commendable. But, but he goes on to say, doesn't he, your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Now, now notice that. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad. So something else was heard. But this was inaudible. There was no noise from this, brothers and sisters. And what this is telling us, and it's telling us something very interesting, is of course we preach the word of God. And we should never stop till the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is direct preaching. But equally, and arguably more important, is our indirect preaching. And it is our witness through our example. So as they were being smashed and hammered, the Macedonian world were looking upon this ecclesia and saying, that's incredible. Look at that ecclesia. Look how they're faithfully responding to the bashing and the smashing and the hammering. God is working through that ecclesia and those brothers and sisters and, and my small and insignificant problems that I'm encountering, if that ecclesia can go through that, then I can go through mine. Can you see the point? Through their direct and through their indirect. Through their preaching and through their witnessing. One was allowed ringing that goes forth and the smashing, the noise. And the other one was through their quiet example. The way that God inflicted upon those heavy blows and the way that they were responsive. Powerful, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And we shouldn't forget, should we? We, we often talk, don't we? we? We often talk about the great campaigns and, and preaching the word of God and we think very prayerfully, don't we, about those who we place upon our platforms and the subject title. 
and we distribute leaflets and we may put adverts in newspapers. These are all explicit, direct preaching. But how many of us spend that amount of time in our private witness? How many of us really think prayerfully about the way that we witness each day? Do, do we spend all our time thinking about what we do at the ecclesia and the way that we preach on the platform? Or do we think about the way that we behave? And, and brothers and sisters, there's so much here about the way that we behave. Because what Paul is saying here, what, what triggers this? What, what, what triggers men and women across Macedonia and Asia to be attentive to the example of the Thessalonians? Well, I suggest this. They ask why. Why, why is this ecclesia behaving like this? This is incredible. Why? What, what do they believe? When was the last time in your quiet example that someone's taking you to one side, brothers and sisters, and said, why did you do that? I can't understand that. That's amazing. I would never have done that. Why did you do that? I'd love to know. It seems so irrational to me, but there must be a reason, because I know you, and, and you're so consistent. Explain to me. Remember, this becomes the blueprint of Ecclesia's around the world. And remember, look at verse 6. They received the word in much affliction. The, the hits of affliction were making their heavy marks. It's in the way that they responded. And once again, we come to the subject of character, don't we? Character. How God is shaping us. And brothers and sisters, if, if, if those around us are not asking us why we behave in the way that we behave, then we're not behaving in the way that God wants us to behave. Are we, if you think about it? And you should ask yourselves as you sit there, and as I speak to you this morning, when was the last time I was asked, why do you behave in the way that you behave, Stephen? Worth to reflect upon, isn't it? Well, look at this, because not only were they being afflicted with these heavy blows, they, they weren't doing this out of ritual, work, labour and patience. There was a real inequality. There was faith, love and hope. L look at this. Look at this in verse 6. Because they receive much affliction. Now, I'd like you to just mark this with joy. They, they, they receive this with joy. Now, now, how do you do that? When, when you're receiving heavy blows on a day-to-day -day basis, brothers and sisters, and you feel very low, broken, shattered, and there you are on the floor, how can you receive those heavy blows by God with joy? How can it be? You've got to have a reason, haven't you? There's got to be a motivation. Well, we'll look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he received from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, I've just read that word, those words there, and you might be thinking, well, there's not really an answer there. Well, there is, brothers and sisters, because... Notice that phrase there, Jesus which delivered us. Now, if I were to tell you that that phrase there, which delivered us, is in the middle voice, you might not know what the middle voice is. It means that it is current. When you read the authorised version here in verse 10, it would seem to suggest that what Paul is saying, don't worry, be joyful, because Jesus died upon the cross... And he's delivered you in the past. No, 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 no. It's a poor translation. 
what Paul is saying here, in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of the bashing and the hammering, Jesus is delivering you. It's the same idea, the three friends in Daniel, as they were delivered from the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. It's the same idea. There was one, like the Son of Man, there in the midst of the fire, delivering the three friends of Daniel. That's the same idea that's being made here. He's delivering you, brothers and sisters. So there he is with you in the, in the smashing and the hammering of day-to-day life, in the, in the toils and the challenges of life. There is Jesus Christ with you, delivering you there and then in the midst of your affliction. Now that is joyful, isn't it? Isn't it? That's joyful. It's not something that happened yesterday or 2,000 years ago. He's there now with you in your present affliction. He is rescuing you. He is saving you today. That's the idea. He's saving you. But whatever problems you come this morning as you sit down and you reflect upon your life, there is Jesus Christ rescuing you here and now. You've got to believe it because it's true. It's true, brothers and sisters. Now, what now Paul does, he's going to now elevate this theme of salvation. He's talked at a very personal level. There he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saving you in the midst of your affliction. And now he elevates the theme. And he's going to say something incredibly profound about your salvation. About your salvation and my salvation. Well, before we, we pick up this idea, come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16. This idea of God, to the work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, saving you. Well, well, you might take that for granted because you're a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are Christadelphians. You have been baptized. But we should never, ever, ever take this for granted because we are so undeserving. In fact, this theme of salvation is an Old Testament theme that just focused on the nation of Israel. We have been grafted into the olive. We are so undeserving. This was a theme for Israel. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's a historic theme. We should never forget the history here. Deuteronomy 16, you know the context. These are the final words of Moses as the children of Israel made their way into the land and Moses wouldn't be there with them. And look at this, verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 16. Thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute, a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice. We've picked up that, that theme of joy. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, before Yahweh thy God, thou and thy son, thy daughter, thy manservant, and thy maidservant, and the Levite that is within thy gates. Everyone! Everyone! And the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. This was the nation of Israel and God had chosen to place his name with them. And thou shalt remember that thou wast bondman in Egypt and thou shalt observe and do these statutes. And then again in verse 14, and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast. And so the whole idea is the children of Israel were to celebrate these feast of tabernacles when they would go out in booths. They were to remember their salvation. They were bondmen in Egypt. They were slaves. And now God has given them salvation. This is a theme of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. And now it is brought about 
it now transcends this time and now it relates to the to the to these Gentiles here in Thessalonica and thereafter to all Gentiles. So it's an Israelitish theme that is there under the Old Testament. So, so what a wonderful thing that is. Something that is so undeserving. Something that relates to the children of Israel, God's people. Uh, a people that came from the loins of Abraham and suddenly now this ecclesia at Thessalonica is beginning to appreciate, wow, th- th- this relates to me. These promises of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are are now mine. God who wanted to save the the nation of Israel as he came out of Egypt, he he also wants to save me. Can you see that? And so when we come back to 1 Thessalonians, we'll we'll pick up this theme a, a little more. This is why they are joyful. Because the the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Yahweh, the living God, the the God of Israel has now become their God. Have you ever really thought about that, brothers and sisters? Yahweh was an exclusive God to the nation of Israel. Now he's your God. And he's my God. And because we put on the, the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now inheritors of the promises to Abraham, Galatians 3 and 4. That's amazing. We, we, we tell our young people, don't we, through instruction, do we really appreciate it? It's wonderful. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Yahweh, is now your God. He is the God of the New Covenant. And the very intentions and the very purpose he had with the nation of Israel, he's now the purpose he has with you and me. We are now walking in the wilderness, just like the children of Israel, making our way to the promised land. It's a repeat, but with us, Gentiles. And that's what Paul is saying. You're now back in the wilderness. Think about the time under Moses. Now, you're now under the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now leading you to the promised land. Well, we'll come back to chapters uh, 2 and 3 now. Of Thessalonians. And, and what we're going to see now is incredible insight into the heart of Paul. He, we've already seen this, haven't we? That he really, really did love his brothers and sisters. And perhaps nowhere else in his letters do we have revealed his, his mind or does he express his motions or uh, the openness of his heart we, we don't find it perhaps anywhere else other than these two chapters of Thessalonians and we're going to just just um, deliberate a little bit upon them this morning because we see a little bit of the man well when we come to chapters 2 and 3 and remember what I said at the outset of the week that this is a real letter with real people with real concerns and, and Paul now is, is explaining himself because remember He couldn't stay there at Thessalonica. He made his way to Athens. He returned um, Silas and Timothy. Then he went to Corinth. He received the news and they went back. But as far as the Thessalonians were concerned, they they never saw Paul. He was absent. And Paul's enemies had started to spread rumours to discredit him. And we see that there was a, a malicious smear campaign to discredit Paul. Now, as you look through the verses in chapter 2 and 3, you you begin to see Paul's self-defense. You can start reconstructing that the slanders that were made, and and these are the kind of slanders, Paul ran away. He he doesn't really care about you. He, he, He actually has ulterior motives. He's setting himself up as someone who's just preeminent over you. He, he wants your financial support. 
All these things were being rumoured around Thessalonica. We can reconstruct the, the arguments here. And Paul now has deliberately waited and he's now going to set the scene right. Now, I wonder, brothers and sisters, whether your name has ever been slandered. It really hurts, doesn't it, when it happens in ecclesial life. We, we can't imagine, but it happens, doesn't it? We, we know it happens. When you have been discredited. When there's a rumour about you that questions your integrity, your, your, your motives. Have you ever experienced that? Paul did. Jesus Christ did all the way through his life. Has that happened to you? Well, of course it has. What, what do you do? Well, I'm going to put him right. There and then. In front of the ecclesia. That's not the attitude. The, the attitude of scripture is to take it. To take it on the chin. And to pray about it. And to not have that person as an enemy. And your opportunity will come. But do it in the spirit of Christ. Because brothers and sisters, that perhaps is the hardest thing to endure in ecclesial life. You know, we can have some heavy blows. But there's nothing more wounding than being wounded in the house of our friends. Ah. When we're wounded in the house of our friends, who are we following? The Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the very words in Zechariah 13 and 12 and 13 that Jesus will reveal himself and tell them that he was afflicted by those whom he loved. And so sometimes, brothers and sisters, if we are to prepare, be prepared to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then at times we will have to endure trouble within the ecclesia when we are put under question our integrity challenge and we are receiving the heavy blows what kind of noise are you going to make will it be the wind and the earthquake and the fire in the business meeting or will it be the still small voice? That's about character, isn't it? That's about character, brothers and sisters. So let's just look at what Paul says here in chapter 2. We want to pick up now in verse 4. And we looked at these words, didn't we, yesterday? But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, there he is as the trustee, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which crieth unto, or trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. God is witness. What, what a lovely phrase that is, that God is witness. We're, we're not witnesses of one another. God is witness. God knows all things. And we will receive our answer at the judgment seat. We've got to either believe that or not. And if you believe that, you, you don't really care what others think of you. As long as you don't go out of your way to offend people. If brothers and sisters are offended by you, and you're not going out your way to do that, then you shouldn't worry about it. Brother Thomas said, he didn't give a rush, did he? That, that's the phrase of Brother Thomas. That really should be our spirit, shouldn't it? Because, because God is witness. 
nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the Apostle Christ. Now, now what Paul is saying, look, you know, I, I didn't try and set myself up as preeminent. I didn't receive uh, funding and finance from you. In fact, if you remember, I worked as a tent maker during the day and I preached in the evening. I was uh, self-contained. I, I sustained myself. So those must have been the arguments. He's fleecing the ecclesia, they would have said. But, but also, notice here, that, that he, he refers to God being the witness. And so, in other words, he's saying, all he cared about was God's manifestation. That's all he's saying, isn't it? That, that was his motivation, wasn't it? God's manifestation. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, because we thought... Um, a little bit about Ephesus yesterday, and that had work, labour and patience, but no faith, hope and love. And that was out of balance. And Paul's saying, let me put you right. I was doing a lot of work, labour and patience. I, I was working. I was really busy. But my motivation was that God is witness. Can you see the point? He's saying, my, my motivation was faith, hope and love. If your motivation, brothers and sisters, is that God is witness in all your life, that is the motivation we should have. Isn't it? Then you're going to have faith and hope and love. But if you think others are your witness, and others are looking at you, and you need to impress them, then we've got a problem. Then you start being pharisaical and keeping up opinions. So we need to be careful and hear what Paul says. Now, now also what's quite interesting here um, is the way that this ecclesia received the message. We're in chapter 2. Have a look at chapter 1. And he says there in verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only. So in chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, Paul is saying how they received the gospel message. Now this theme of how they received the gospel message is picked up again in chapter 2 and verse 13. So you can make a connection between chapter 1 and verse 5 and 2 verse 13. And he says something really amazing here. And what he does, he lays out how they responded to the preaching of the gospel. And, and look at verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because, he says, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, again, really, really simple points, but incredibly important lessons. Notice here that, that the word received is used twice for emphasis. Just, just mark that out, please. Verse 13, ye received the word of God, which ye heard of it, ye received. So Paul is making emphasis of this word received. Now, he also makes a contrast between the word of God and the word of men. Now, so what he's saying here, when you received the gospel, you received it as the word of God. You did not receive it as the word of men. In other words, when you received the gospel, you viewed it as the holy inspired word of God in its entirety. Ah, that's a challenge that faces the community today, isn't it? 
when we start interpreting those opening chapters of Genesis and saying they're metaphorical or it's a narrative, it's not quite literal. What are we doing when we do that? We are taking the gospel word and we're making it the word of men. What others think about Genesis or the atonement or the coming kingdom of God. But this Ecclesia of Thessalonica received the entire scriptures as the holy, infallible word of God. And so you have a choice, brothers and sisters, and I have a choice, and we have a choice in the way that we raise our children. You can view it as the word of God, or you can view it as the word of man. You can be selective in those sections that you believe are wholly inspired and should be understood in a literal way. You have a choice. But the Thessalonians are commended that they received as the word of God, the blueprint of all ecclesias, Gentile ecclesias, to follow thereafter. And brothers and sisters, that's the challenge we face today. And sadly, it's within the brotherhood. So you have a choice. Now, this is interesting because I pointed out the word receive. Can I just tell you what the word receive means? Put this in your margins, please. The word receive there, it's used twice for emphasis. Paul is drawing our attention to it. It it simply means to take with the hand and to take hold of it and to never let it go. What what are you going to do? You've all received the truth. You let it go. Are you? Can you let it go, brothers and sisters? When we're so close to God's coming kingdom, are you? Do you know where else that word is used? Hmm. Come with me to Luke chapter 8. Now it gets interesting. Isn't it amazing that that word received is connected perhaps to the most simple section of God's word. Even our children understand it. The parable of the sower. Although there's nothing possible that we can understand about the parable of the sower. We know everything about the parable of the sower as you sit there in the audience. Well, do we? I suggest not. Luke chapter 8 then. And then we're going to read these words carefully. We're going to read these words carefully and we're going to see the connections. Now, Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to answer a question now. In your heads. What does the soil relate to? Okay. You've answered that question. Luke chapter 8. Verse 11. This is the parable. The seed is the word of God. Ah, the word of God versus the word of men. There's a first little um, connection there. And then we go down to verse 13. They on the rock are they which when they hear, they receive it. Same word. Same word. They receive the word with, ah, we we saw that in in chapter 1, with joy. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? They receive it with joy. And these have, oh, it it changes now. These have no roots, which for a while believed and in time temptation fall away. And then verse 15, but that's on the good ground are they, which in honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Well, we've got a problem, haven't we? Because when we look at these words, the word of God, and they receive it and with joy, and you look at those words and you think, well, that, that's a problem because that's stony ground. 
Look at the connections here, brothers and sisters. There are so many connections. Let's go through them. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Much affliction, time of temptation, Luke 8 verse 13. Joy, 1 verse 6 in Thessalonians. Joy in Luke 8 verse 13. Hurt, in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Here, in Luke 8 verse 13. Received, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Received. Luke 8 verse 13. The word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. The word of God. 8 verses 11 and 13. And then, the one missing link. Effectually worketh. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Is the fruit with patience. But that's a problem. Because that's in a different soil. So what's the lesson? What's the exhortation, brothers and sisters? This ecclesia at Thessalonica was the most unlikely candidate. It was stony ground. It was pagan. It was immoral. There was hustle and bustle. It was a prosperous port. The truth would never take root here. Yet in reality, it was good soil. And so, the parable of the sower is not where God plants his seed. It's how the individual responds in affliction. That's the message, brothers and sisters. So refine your interpretation, the parable of the sower. It's not what kind of heart it is. It's what kind of heart it is in affliction. And this ecclesia was being beaten and bashed and smashed in rocky ground. But it brought forth a hundredfold. How lovely is that? This is simple Bible study. Incredibly profound, isn't it? And so, brothers and sisters, not what was to be expected by men, but what was expected by God. And this ecclesia flourished. We, we talked a little bit about, didn't we, um, this whole idea of salvation. And this is why the ecclesia was joyful, because this ecclesia knew that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was saving them. That these promises that related to a nation that was remote to them, Jews, now related to them as Gentiles. We're going to pick up now this thought of joy. Come with me back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and, and this is lovely. And we're going to bring out a, an exhortation for you here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 19 then, and we want to understand how this ecclesia continued with enthusiasm. Well, here we read, chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not ye even in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? I'm sure you've got that noted now. Perusia, in our first class. Perusia, the coming of the king, the coming of the emperor. For ye are our glory and our joy. So, so this joy here, we see in verse 19, is related to the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. 
So the joy is related to the parousia, okay? So the joy that you're feeling today is related to the coming in the future of the emperor. So your feeling today is very much related to the expectation that will be yours in the future. Now you should ask yourselves, are you, do you feel like that? Or is your feeling very much related to today? Or are, your, or are part of your feelings today related to the feelings that you anticipate for tomorrow? That, that's worth probing yourself a little. Now, now Paul, under inspiration, he uses a very important word because I want you to notice he's already used the parousia. He also uses another important word and it's the word the presence. Okay, can you see that? The presence. And the presence also means an arrival. It means the arrival or the manifestation. And it's interesting because in ancient Greek, this word related to the appearance of the gods. Now remember, I've already told you that 50 miles away you could see Mount Olympus. And if you saw one of the gods on Mount Olympus, it is that word there, the presence. It is the manifestation. And there they are, they're looking out. They're they're looking out for the appearance of the gods. And so, under inspiration, Paul uses this word and relates it to the true God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you know what? I know that your joy is related to the parousia, to the arrival of the king. But it's more than that. Your joy is related to the manifestation of the king. It's more than Jesus Christ is going to arrive on the earth. He's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. A temple is going to be established. The preaching of the everlasting gospel is going to go forth. He is going to shake this world like no other time. This is the manifestation of the Son of God. Now, brothers and sisters, and that is a time when the saints will be there in glory. Now, now can you honestly say to yourselves that your joy is related to that picture? Where there is no vision, the people perish. Isn't this another way of saying that? Isn't this another way of saying that? And if you close your eyes, do, do you see yourself there, brothers and sisters? You know, many brothers and sisters tell me, you know, Brother Stephen, I, I can't imagine myself there because that's being presumptuous. No, it's not. We've already seen here this morning that Jesus Christ is in the midst of your affliction and he's saving you. And why is he saving you? Because he he intends to save you, ultimately. So if we can't see ourselves when we close our eyes in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's nothing presumptuous or arrogant in that, if we don't see that, then we deny the power of God. Because another way of looking at it is I'm a sinner... And I'm terrible, but God is so strong and so powerful, he can save even me. And I'm going to be there in God's strength. You're never going to get there in your strength. If you look at that scene and think about yourself, well, of course you're not going to be there. But if you look at the scene in God's strength, how can you not be there? How can you not be there, brothers and sisters? And this was the motivation for these brothers and sisters as they're being smashed and hammered. They kept their eye on the kingdom. And it didn't flicker once. And they endured everything with joy. 
Profound lessons, aren't they? Now, look at this. What do you have to have when you're looking at that future vision? You've got to have faith. Faith. Okay? So, let's see if we can find faith here in chapter 3. Well, you'll notice there's a short phrase, and I want you to notice this. If you look at verse 2, again, I've got all these marked out in, in my Bible. At the end of verse 2, you've got that little phrase, your faith. Worth underlining that, because there's a, there's a theme that runs all the way through chapter 3. So please mark that out. Your faith. We'll, we'll draw out the excitation, the application in a moment. Your faith. You've got to have faith, haven't you? Faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. You, you can't see yourself in God's coming kingdom. You've got to have faith. End of verse 2, your faith. Halfway down verse 5, your faith. Halfway down verse 6, your faith. The end of verse 7, your faith. Right at the end of verse 10, your faith. Five times, five the number of grace, your faith. So this little section here is all about your faith. And this ecclesia was enduring severe persecution. So what's Paul anxious about? What's he anxious about? Your faith. That's what he was anxious about. He knew that if they had faith, they could endure the blows. Their faith. Now, now, brothers and sisters, at the end of a Sunday morning meeting, if you go around and don't say anything and listen to the conversations, we talk at times about everything, don't we? Everything. Everything under the sun. And if we do start talking about one another, perhaps we, we might say... Um, I'm thinking about you on Tuesday. You'll you'll be in my prayers. Hope all goes well with the doctor. Next weekend. I know you've got a difficult weekend next weekend with the family. You're in our thoughts. Well, Well, that's lovely to say, isn't it? Perhaps we should reframe it. The, the scriptures tell us that we're going to be enduring these blows, like the big bashes that are, that are knocking into shape this ecclesia at Thessalonica. So we shouldn't be surprised when we turn up on a Sunday and we've got difficulties. Well, we're often amazed. Oh, poor brother X, he's got difficulties. We're all going to have difficulties. If you don't realise that we're having difficulties, brothers and sisters, then we're blind. We've all got difficulties. So why is it, as Christadelphians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as I'm concerned, we never ask, Brother X, how is your faith? And how can I help that? Can you see, it's, 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 it's slightly different, but incredibly, profoundly different, isn't it? Rather than saying, how can I help you overcome that challenge in the practical way? How can I help you spiritually? So that you're more prepared, you've got a stronger faith to endure that affliction. And, and perhaps what I'm suggesting here, maybe we should ask more often, one another, how's your faith? Is there anything I can do? And it might be that brother X or sister Y simply says, pray that my faith can grow. And then you've done your duty, haven't you? And this is all Paul cared about. He knew that they were facing problems. But the only thing he cared about was 
how is your faith? And it was the very first question he asked Timothy when they came back. Timothy and Silas, and they come back with a report, and Paul goes, that's wonderful. J- just tell me before you read the report, how's their faith? Oh, it's wonderful, Paul. Oh, thank God. That's been my prayer. And you can see that in, in chapter 3. If you look at uh, verse 3, you see there that Paul's concern was no one would be moved by these afflictions. There's two words there I want you to note. No one would be moved. No one would be unsettled is the meaning of that. No one would be unsettled by these afflictions or trials. That, that, that's really it, isn't it? That, that's really it. Are you, you're feeling unsettled by the trials. And if you are unsettled, how can I help you be settled? I'm feeling unsettled. Well, what can I do to help you be settled? Because the trials are coming. And if any of us are sitting in the audience this morning thinking, well, the trials are not really with me at the moment. They, they will. They'll come. That's inevitable. So that's the question we should be asking. Are you feeling unsettled, brother? Well, I am actually, Brother Stephen. How can I help you be settled? You see? That was Paul's question there. Now, they were unsettled a little bit, because if you note, in the end... Well, let's read verse 6. That There was something. They were facing affliction. We're going to see tomorrow that they had a little doctrine problem. And um, for good reason. But look at verse 6. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we have also to see you. So, so here is Timothy. He comes back. He gives a good report. What's the report missing? Can you see it? Thank you, Sister Linda. There is no hope there. Can you see that? They've got faith. They've got love. But the bashing and the smashing and the hammering was beginning to cause the vision to flicker, even with the Thessalonians. So Paul now is going to write a message of hope to them. In dramatic style, tomorrow and, God willing, Friday, I'm going to give you a picture of God's coming kingdom. And, And Paul is going to write in a way that we don't find anywhere in the New Testament. He's going to provide information and detail and a series of sequences that we don't find anywhere else in order to, to, to address this problem that the hope was shaking a little bit. So we, we, we shouldn't feel embarrassed if our vision is flickering. Even the Thessalonians had a little flicker. Paul now writes to them and he writes a message of hope. Okay. Well, if you come back to chapter 1, I want to just develop finally one theme that was going to help them with their hope. So, we see here that they were flickering a little bit on hope. Having noted that, then we pick out a couple of details in this epistle that addresses this problem of hope. Look at verse 4 then in chapter 1. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. You are chosen of God. That's what it means. You are chosen of God. Remember that. God has chosen you. And he's going to usher you into God's kingdom. And this is interesting, you know, because 
this again is a, a phrase that relates to the children of Israel. So, so with those thoughts in mind, come again back to the book of Deuteronomy. And I think Paul, having been schooled in the law, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This is where he's taking our minds to. Deuteronomy chapter 7, under inspiration. Deuteronomy chapter 7. So remember, we go back here with our minds thinking about being of the elect of God, chosen of God. Well, who was chosen of God? Deuteronomy chapter 7, and uh, we'll pick up verse 5. But thus shall ye deal. Well, first, before we get there, notice in verse 2 how God uses phrases such as, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. So in the introduction to the fact that the children of Israel are chosen of God, a contrast is made. And the contrast is made of the Gentiles, the heathen nations. And God is telling Moses here, who instructs the children of Israel, when you go into the land, remember You are God's chosen, and everybody else is not. And so, therefore, you are to destroy all those heathens who worship false gods. Okay? Okay, having thought that, look at verse 5. But thus shall ye deal with them, these Gentiles, these heathens. Ye shall destroy their altars break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. So there's no hope, is there? There's no hope if you're a Gentile. If you've got paganism in your country, there's there's no hope in Deuteronomy. You're going to get wiped out. Verse 6, however, in striking contrast, Israel, for thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, well, they were at times, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. They're elect, aren't they? God's elected them. To be a special people unto himself. Above all the people upon the face of the earth. They were elect. They were distinct. Because God had entrusted them with his promises. The Lord did not set his love upon you. Nor choose you because you were more in number. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. And because he would keep the oath to the patriarchs of old. So so can you see the point that's being made here? First of all, this whole idea of being chosen is just Israeli. It's Jewish. Thessalonians. What God entrusted Israel is now yours. You're chosen. And they would have thought, well, I know those words come from Deuteronomy chapter 7, but we are a Gentile, aren't we? Verse 5 is the answer to Deuteronomy chapter 7. What were the Jews to do? They were to destroy the idols. What had the Thessalonians done? They had abandoned the idols. They did it themselves. They had had become adopted Jews. Can can you see the point, brothers and sisters? They, They didn't need Joshua to go in and destroy the idols and the pagan altars for them. They'd done it themselves. They had mentally destroyed these things. And so therefore they become adopted Jews. And so these very things related to them. They were special. They were the elect of God. Well, again, we, we pick up these themes. Have a look at verse 8. 
But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and rejo- oh, well, we've got this theme of salvation now, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him, he will repay him to his face. Verse 18. Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. And then verse 21. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And so this ecclesia here, facing another Pharaoh, Nero, who was persecuting them. And they become adopted Jews, and so then they become bondmen, as it were, under Nero, the the, the Neo-Pharaoh. And here the words of comfort were, you are chosen, you are elect, you're not to be frightened, because God, Yahweh, is with you. Can you see that? All these themes now come flooding into the Thessalonians. They become the new Israel. Isn't that lovely? And we are the new Israel, brothers and sisters. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received the promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Our hope is a kingdom that will be established in the nation of Israel and Jerusalem will be the capital. And this is what is being said to these Thessalonians. And, and so perhaps then, when we think about that, that this, this God who, who delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, this great and mighty and all-powerful God that, that we read from the Lord, the Lord, he's now your God. He's not the God of Moses and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the The God of you and the God of me. And brothers and sisters, when you really start to think about that and believe in that, then perhaps I would suggest the challenges and trials that come your way take on a a very fresh perspective, don't they? When you know that you have got the living God on your side and there is nothing to fear. Well, I want to finish with some questions. But before we get to those questions, let's just look at how the Thessalonians replied, responded to something. Come back, um, finally, to Thessalonians in chapter 1. They are the elect of God. And, again, it's a very, very simple exhortation. Look how this ecclesia responded. Chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as ye know that what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Then verse 6, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God would be spread abroad, so that ye need not speak anything. Now we've looked at all three verses. Now what I want to do now is just simply put them together. 
What we've got here in chapter 1 is the way that the gospel has advanced around the world, how it has progressed from the first century till now. Look at verse 5. The gospel came to them. Verse 6. They welcomed the gospel. And verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from them. So it came to them. They received it. And they simply passed it on. And if you think about how you received the truth, how you individually received the truth, how you came into the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've already heard so many stories over meals of how many of you have come into the truth. Those three steps apply, don't they? They apply to you. They apply to me. So there's a couple of questions here. Our gospel came to you, you welcomed the message, the Lord's message rang out from you. And so, brothers and sisters, the the first question I ask you, have you received the message gladly? Are you like the Bereans? Just so excited to open up God's word and to read the scriptures every single day. Have you received it gladly? And you should also ask yourselves the question, has the Lord's message rang out from you? Not not in your preaching efforts in the Ecclesia, because that's often beyond your control. You're just privy to that. But in your personal witness. What, What are you doing, brothers and sisters, with God's message? How is your indirect preaching going? How is your witnessing? How are you being an example? When was the last time that someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, I'm loving what you're doing, but why do you do it? So finally, here, the three questions I leave with you. The Thessalonians were in samples. They were examples. The Greek word tupos, we looked at that, didn't we? Because they were being hammered and beaten. How can we be more like them in our affliction? Joy needs to be part, an important part of our lives. So how can you, how can I be more joyful in our daily trials? And and what are we doing? What are we doing with the gospel we have received? We all know, don't we, that we could do so much more. What are you going to change today? in your day-to-day witnessing.